everyone here. Uh, we're glad that you are here with us. To those who are with us online, we're glad that you're with us in that capacity as well. Uh, for those who are online, you, you are unable to smell the sugary sugarness that I can smell and we all can smell, most of us can smell maybe in here. It smells like a waffle cone. Um, and so this will be a seven-minute homily that we'll have. We'll wrap it up and move right into our fellowship meal and dessert auction uh, that we are having shortly after the service this morning. As we raise funds to support our Pack Hope event uh, coming in April, which we will be serving together, uh, packing meals that are going to go to refugees throughout the world. It'll be a wonderful experience, and today will be a shared and wonderful experience uh, preparing for that as a church family. So hopefully you'll be able to stay on with us after the service and enjoy good food and company and fellowship, and then whether or not you participate in the dessert auction, at least I'm sure it will be uh, a fun and hilarious experience. So look forward to that together. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that Bible to Revelation. We're going to look at chapter 10 and half of chapter 11. And because we're going to read a, a lengthier portion, well, we're just going to dive right into it. Revelation chapter 10 and into chapter 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever and who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from Heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dubbed bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the prophet, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. God, as we come to this strange, peculiar passage, we certainly pray that you would help us, help us to see the good, the encouragement for your people. May we heed the warning for those who may be far from you. Would you draw near, draw them near to you? God, we ask that you'd be with the preaching and the hearing, the receiving of this, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We often think of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the sense of individual salvation. And I mean, it is right to see Jesus as our only means of redemption, that his life, death, and resurrection secure for us our salvation from sin. And because we have a tendency to individualize the saving work of Christ, we can miss the big picture of how significant Jesus is in the landscape of history. Theologians have helped us along the way as they've studied Scripture and understood the fulfilling work of Christ in these three ways. First, in His inauguration, that is, Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection fulfill God's promise of redemption. That's his, his ministry on earth in his life, taking on flesh and doing what he did for us, overcoming what he overcame for us, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And then the second thing that we find is the continuation. That is, the good news of the saving work of Christ is on display and declared through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's going on right now, this very moment, as I'm speaking and as you're sitting and listening, we are in that particular day. It's a day of the gospel. It's a day of good news. We get to announce that the king has uh, saving ways for his people. And then there will be a great day at the very end. Theologians call it consummation, but it's the return of Jesus, which he ushers in the full, final, and forever reality of redemption. Restoring God's people in God's place and vanquishing all sin, all evil, all enemies. And it's this big picture scope of the saving work of Christ that we find on display in Revelation. We, we definitely see moments in this letter as it unfolds in which the focus is certainly on how sufficient Jesus' work is in the in, in, excuse me in the inauguration of his coming and fulfilling work. 
And we definitely see how the church is continuing on declaring the good news. And we are anticipating that great and glorious day in which He returns. We live in a day and an age in which we are celebrating and rejoicing over what Christ did. And at the same time, anticipating and longing for what Christ will do. All the while announcing how sufficient Jesus is. When we individualize salvation, which we need to understand it, obviously for ourselves and our own hearts, and we fail to see that big picture, we can sometimes feel a little overwhelmed by the world around. But when we set that saving work of Christ for us in the context of what He's doing over the scope of history, there we find courage, confidence, and comfort. Now, As we come to Revelation, we are coming to a very peculiar passage, as there are many of them in this letter. I want to refresh our memory of of something that we covered early on in our series back in the fall. Revelation is a very unique book in the Bible, and because of that, we need to understand its uniqueness as we come to passages like this. Just like you would if you were to sit down and read from the Psalms in the Old Testament, you would know that they're uh, poetry, that it's poetry on display. And so you're going to read it differently than if you sat down to read Joshua, which is historical narrative. You understand the writing has an impact on on how you understand and apply it to your life. And the same is true for us as we come to Revelation. We need to remember that Revelation is first and foremost a letter to the church. It is a letter written to the church for its encouragement to hold on. We've been stressing that through our entire series. Life is hard. Evil is real. God is in control. Jesus wins. So hold on. It's a letter for our encouragement. But it's a very unique letter. And it has two extra features to it. One, it's prophetic. It's prophetic in that it's speaking about things to come, for sure. And it's also a message from God through a messenger to the church. So it carries with it its own unique qualities of a prophetic writing. And then thirdly, it's apocalyptic, meaning it's about the very end. It's very intensely, symbolically, like vividly speaking of what is going to take shape at the very end at King Jesus' return. This is a very unique book of the Bible. And as such, we should understand that that uniqueness is going to impact us when we come to strange or difficult things. In Revelation chapter 8 through 11, we are getting big doses of a highly symbolic, intense, metaphoric language. Last week, we considered the seven trumpets which intensely describe God's unfolding judgment on his enemies throughout history. This judgment happens throughout history, but culminates fully, finally, and with forever consequences at the return of King Jesus. This reality is to bring the church courage and comfort to keep holding on in this life is hard, evil is real world. And within the unfolding judgment of the seven trumpets, the Apostle John is given another interlude, another interruption between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Just like how when we were going through the seven seals a few weeks back, there was a timely encouragement for the church. And so it is here in chapter 10 and half of 11. 
What we find is that this interlude, this interruption, is focused on the witness of the church in the history of the world. The witness of the church in the history of the world. And as we look at that, we will find that the witness of the church in the, in the history of the world is a call first to be faithful with the gospel. As we consider the, the unfolding of history and the witness of the church within that, it is a call to be faithful with the gospel. And then secondly, and what this interruption really drives home, it's a call to be faithful with the gospel no matter what. No matter what. Because the unfolding of history is hard. It will be hard for the church to be faithful to the gospel, with the gospel. And so this encouragement, this timely interruption, is a call to be faithful with the gospel no matter what. So let's consider that together. And hopefully we will be encouraged all the more. First, be faithful with the gospel. We find here the heart of what is happening in chapter 10. Because the gospel is essentially the mystery of God's purposes revealed. The mystery of God's purposes revealed. And we find another little scroll involved in our story. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2 of Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his foot on the sea, and his, his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. There's a little scroll in his hand. Now, Revelation draws upon the Old Testament in very profound and significant ways, and it's drawing on here from two particular moments in the Old Testament, one from Ezekiel and one from Daniel, both of whom were prophets. And so they had very similar experiences that John was having. They were called into a very specific ministry of proclaiming God's purposes, both judgment and restoration. Their ministries were to say the bad news and the good news. But the, the bad news was really heavy for the people of God. And we find that that's essentially what John's task is, is to announce the hard and heavy news. Life in this world is hard. Evil is real. But also the good news, that God is in control and Jesus wins, so that we can then hold on. And we find also in verse 7 of chapter 10, that this is occurring in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, which we see here is the mystery of God would be fulfilled. That is, life as the church, the witness of the church, in the history of the world will be challenging and hard. But it is part of God's purposes in revealing His promises and His purpose. All of God's purposes for all of history are wrapped up in the full work of King Jesus. And so at His return, all will be evident and fully realized. Now we find that John is to take that little scroll and do something odd with it. <laughs> He's to take it and eat it. Which is a way of saying, you are to do this work. Go fulfill the work that you are being commissioned to do. Take this and live this out. 
Live this out. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. So John's commission was to a ministry to proclaim the gospel, knowing that while the gospel is sweet, it is good news, it will be a bitter ministry because it will be fiercely opposed. And that's essentially not just John's ministry. And not only is that similar to the ministry that Daniel and Ezekiel had in their day, hey, you have this incredible message to proclaim, but there will be hard hearts that will fail to receive it. And some of them will actually fiercely oppose you. It's not just an example to the church, but it's also a pattern for the church. We too have a sweet message. The good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ that rescues us from our sin and restores us right to God. Incredible news. But it will be opposed. It will be rejected. That just because it's going to be opposed and rejected doesn't mean we stop. Doesn't mean it's not a delight. Doesn't mean it's not sweet. And that's what the encouragement is is for us here in this passage in chapter 10 and 11. Is that, yeah, it's going to be opposed and yeah, it's going to make your life hard in many ways. But it doesn't mean you stop. You hold on. And so, at the heart of this, the witness of the church is to delight in and declare the gospel of Christ. And fundamental to the witness of the church is faithfulness to and with the gospel. The Old Testament contexts that are being drawn upon are clear. Hold on. Keep proclaiming good news, even if it is rejected, even if it is opposed. And we hold on through faith, not through our works, not through our strength. We hold on through faith. And in faith, we delight in and declare. To delight in is to rejoice over the worth of Christ. It is to come and see that it is indeed sweet. If all of God's purposes for all of history and everything are wrapped up in the person and work of Christ, A work that was done by grace. A work done to rescue sinners. To restore us right. To make all things new. If that's at the heart of God's purposes of history, then oh, what joy. What profound, inexpressible joy this is. And if the overwhelming scope of God's grace is on full display in the gospel of Christ, then oh, what a joy it is to sing it, to pray it, to preach it, to share it, to delight in it together, like we're doing today. Or if you're in a life group, or if you're in a smaller group of encouragement in one another's lives, what a profound joy to have at the very heart of what binds us together 
a sovereign God graciously saving sinners through the sacrifice of His Son, who lived, died, and rose again, defeating sin, death, and Satan, and that all who look to Him through faith will be saved. What joy. And that joy we get to declare. That news we get to declare. We get to go about making much of Christ. We follow in the pattern of these Old Testament prophets and this New Testament moment that the Apostle John was experiencing. We follow in the pattern of declaring how great Jesus is, how worth it He is, how sufficient He is for our salvation, that we make much of it. And here's the thing. We will declare that which we delight in. Whatever it is that we delight in, we will declare it. And so the the call, the challenge, is to delight in this good news of Jesus Christ, even if it makes our lives difficult. To delight in it with all our hearts, together as a church, to delight in it, So as to be a people, a church that goes about declaring it no matter what. Christ is to be at the heart, the the nervous system of our church. We can't lose sight of Christ as our delight because if we do, we will lose our voice at making much of Christ. It is an encouragement, a warning, a caution, all of that wrapped up together in the midst of a life is hard, evil is real world. Don't stop delighting and declaring. It is worth it. And now we see that in chapter 11, it is worth it no matter what. No matter what. The call is to be faithful to and with the gospel. No matter what. As we get into chapter 11, we find that it is filled with many metaphors. And the role of metaphors in Revelation are important. So let's let's look at verses 1 through 3 of Revelation chapter 11 as we consider the call of the witness of the church and the history of the world is to to be faithful to the gospel with the gospel no matter what. Chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And we have a measuring rod. We have the temple. We have a holy city. We have 42 months. And, you know, 1,200 or so days, which is equivalent to 42 months. And what is going on in all of this? And how do we approach these kinds of metaphors? And, and so this is a good part to sort of remind us again of the way that we go about approaching a very unique book in the Bible like Revelation. Because as we better understand how to un, like apply these metaphors uh, to our lives for our encouragement, uh, the more encouragement we will gain. So I want to just very quickly say or describe three main approaches to Revelation and therefore to these kinds of metaphors that we find in this chapter and throughout the book. 
The first approach to Revelation is called a past-oriented approach. It has technical names. I don't want to go into that. I just The whole point is it's a past-oriented approach. It interprets Revelation literally with a past-only focus of application. So it reads through these metaphors, and these metaphors that are in there have very literal renderings and understandings that are situated in the past. They read something like this in Revelation 11 and find that its fulfillment occurred in and and at 70 A.D. A historical event happened um, in 70 A.D. Jerusalem was sieged uh, by Rome, and as that siege played out, Rome eventually took the city, destroyed most of it, also destroying the temple. And so this past oriented approach, reads this, these metaphors and thinks of all of its focus and attention and application in a pre-70 AD context. That's one way of approach, a very common way. Probably the most common way, and, and maybe most of us in this room probably have had as maybe our operating system when we think of Revelation, is a future-oriented approach. That it interprets Revelation literally But not with a past-only focus of application, but rather with a future-only focus of application. So it's looking down the corridors of time in a point when Christ will return and there would be crazy stuff happening in the world leading up to that. And among the crazy stuff would be that they see something like Revelation 11 as, as being fulfilled near Christ's return when the temple that was destroyed in 70 A.D., is rebuilt. So they're anticipating looking forward to that kind of a moment in history. And so a future-oriented approach is looking down the road and seeing the application of this for then. And then that leads us to the third one, the third approach. The third approach is a present-minded approach. Instead of interpreting Revelation literally, it interprets Revelation figuratively with present-day application in any age of the church. So that Revelation becomes applicable in the past and in the future, but also very much right now. The picture of Revelation chapter 11 describes the whole church age, not a specific moment in the past, or a specific moment in the future, but the whole amount of time in which the church exists. And so it's much more focused on conveying the reality that the church will face physical harm, yet have spiritual protection. That this interruption in the unfolding of God's judgment over His enemies throughout history culminating at King Jesus' return, that this timely encouragement in the midst of that is that, yes, church, you will experience harm and opposition, but God is with you and you will be protected. So, those approaches are at play as we think about Revelation. And many of us in here may be all over the... Some of us may think of it in the past. Some of us may think of it in the future. Some of us might think of it as present-minded. I want to work through some of these metaphors 
and then kind of let you know where I land on it. Though I'm sure you probably already figured it out. I had a seminary professor, whenever he would list off you know, different, mo- different ideas around a particular doctrine or passage, he would give all the main sort of ways in which people interpret it. And we knew very quickly that whatever the last one was, was the right one. So, just kidding. So let's go through the metaphors that inform our passage. First is the measuring rod. Measuring in the Old Testament is a metaphor of two things that are quite significant for us here. It's a metaphor for protection, and it's a metaphor for judgment, both of which are associated with God's presence. It's a metaphor for protection and judgment, and is closely associated with God's presence. We do see it in 2 Samuel chapter 8. David is going around, King David is going around defeating God's enemies who have abused and oppressed God's people. And he comes to one group and he defeats them in in 2 Samuel 8. And he, David, defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one line to be spared. And so we see there a picture of judgment but also protection or of grace. You see justice and grace on display in the use of measuring. And then we find a very significant moment in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 40. I want to read just the first three verses of Ezekiel 40. I think they'll be on the screen. Ezekiel 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, On that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel, and he set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears. Set your hearts upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order to that I might show it to you, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And so even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of ju- uh, judgment, here Ezekiel is getting a vision, a picture of this restoration that would one day come. And it was measured out for him. And so we find that measuring carried with it a very important metaphor. That God would be with his people. He would bring justice to his enemies. You could certainly see how this would be very encouraging for the church in John's day. And my hope would be that it's very encouraging for us in our day. That God will be with us. He is with us and will be with us. And that he will restore all that has been broken. He will heal all that has been wounded. Good news. Then we come to the 42 months. And 42 months comes out to three and a half years. Which is kind of a significant number whenever discussing anything related to Revelation or anything related to the very end of history. Literal approaches to these 42 months have you doing lots of math. Nobody needs to be doing lots of math. No, I'm just kidding. But they do. There's a lot of math that you're trying to do. You're to find the period of time that there will be this great tribulation and this secret special rescue mission of the church, which is commonly called a rapture. Literal approaches will take those 42 months and, and work them out in literal ways in history. 
Yet so much more is wrapped up in this figurative metaphor. It speaks to the whole church age, not just the very end, not just a specific moment before the end, but the whole thing. It says that the whole church age is under a great tribulation as it goes forth delighting in and declaring the gospel. 42 months draws upon some things from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9. And there are some equivalents in those, figure, in those uh, metaphors that are being used in Daniel. What we need to know is that 42 months is three and a half years, which is half of seven. Seven is a very important symbolic number in the Bible. It means whole or complete. Therefore, there is a, an idea here that the entirety of all of eternity is not filled with suffering, that suffering will not last forever. Then in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we find a, a similar metaphor in use, not so much as, as in months, but we find it in weeks um, that carry over into a figurative uh, picture of years. It's, it gets all complicated in prophetic literature and, and what these days and months and years are all pointing to. But listen to what is said in Daniel chapter 9. Verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant for many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So here we have one week, very similar to, uh, which is seven days, very similar to seven years. And half of the week, it's filled with great trouble. And then that trouble will come to the end. And the one who brought all that trouble will be brought to an end. In the second half of the week, it will not be filled with that great trouble. So it's speaking of this period of time that will be filled with trouble, followed up by a very similar period of time that will not be filled with trouble. So both sides of that week, that three and a half days and then the three and a half days of of not trouble, are mirrors in the sense. They're speaking to a whole period of time. That means the entire church age is one of tribulation, of great difficulty, great struggle, of great hardship. And that time will come to an end when the king returns. And brings an end to those who desolate. And that time when the king returns will be filled with great peace and great joy and great hope and great wonder. And all of this is set in the context in which history is unfolding and God's purposes are being fulfilled. And at no point, and this is, this is where we, we don't want to lose sight of this, it gets confusing. It is odd. It's overwhelming to get up here and try to like articulate this in a sermon with the sugar smell that's filling our appetites. I get all that. And, and wherever we land on these things with the past or the future or the present, in one sense, it doesn't really matter what you think or what I think. Because what's true is, yes, life is hard. And yes, evil is real. But God is in control, and Jesus wins, so hold on. That's true. No matter how we approach Revelation, that's true. And as we wrestle with this, and as we look over history, 
as we look in our day, and as we anticipate however many more days we have or the church has in this world, those things don't stop being true. They're worth our delight. They're worth our declaring. Faithful gospel witness will face hardship in this world. But we face that hardship with God. With a God who is with us. Revelation 11, excuse me, 3 through 8, we we don't necessarily have time to go through all of that. um, So let's just narrow it down to verse 6. Revelation 11, verse 6, I I believe I have one uh, verse there for it. It says that they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And maybe that, that verse draws two things in the Old Testament to mind. There's two ministries that that draws to mind. One is Ezekiel and the other is Moses. And it's equating the ministry of the church, the witness of the church, and the history of the world in very similar ways to those ministries. If you know the ministry of Ezekiel, excuse me, of Elijah, not Ezekiel, I think I said Ezekiel. If you know the ministry of Elijah, he was a prophet and he had to announce bad news to people who did not like him. Some repented and believed and trusted God, but others fiercely opposed him. And Moses, we know of in the plagues and the exodus. And we see that the ministry of Moses and Elijah faced fierce opposition, but God was with them. And so it is with us. And so it is with us. In the rest of of chapter 11, we can see in verses 9 through 13 that throughout this process, God has not abandoned His people. In fact, He says, At the very end, come on up here. Looking at verses 11 and 12, consider these encouragements. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. They went up in heaven in a cloud. Their enemies watched them. A profound comfort. No matter how fiercely rejected and marginalized we might be in our relationships of people that we love and live with and work with and share life around, no matter how much a culture may reject the very hope that we have and say it's hogwash and stupid and idiotic and ritualistic, no matter how much of uh, opposition we may face that could take our lives. King Jesus says, come on up here. Get on up here. I take these words in Revelation 10 and 11 from a very present-minded approach. Believing that they're very relevant for us this day, right now. And I know that maybe many of you have heard heard these verses taught from a future-oriented approach and see them speaking to a future event of great persecution and a secret rescue. And that's fine. The overriding encouragement for us all 
is that the church will face all sorts of opposition, but we do so with God. It matters not that we face it because we always have our king with us. Trying to figure out all the math from a highly symbolic book of the Bible, drawing on other portions of highly symbolic scripture in the Old Testament, it can be exhausting. And I think at times misses the forest for the trees. Instead, let us hold on and And if I'm wrong, my approach is wrong, that encouragement still remains. It still remains. We can hold on. We can hold on to Christ together. We can hold on to Him as He holds on to us. And we can respond in our day with faithfulness to and with the gospel. Because we have good news. Good news is that Jesus showed up and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved and defeated the enemies of our soul. We have that good news. We have good news that we get to delight in and declare the saving work of Jesus Christ for God's glory and the salvation of weary sinners. And yeah, it will be rejected and we may face hardships, but we won't be defeated. And we have good news that one day our faith will move to sight and King Jesus will make all things right. Final justice against sin, death, and Satan. With a glorious welcome, come on up here to his weary but hope-filled people. What a day. So hold on. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do that good work in us as we wrestle with hard and complicated passages. We fumble through trying to make sense of them. Help us not lose sight of the biggest picture of it all, that you are in control and that King Jesus wins. And we have the good news to announce his victorious work. And we live in the day in which sinners can be saved. And so I would just pray that if there is any here with us this day whose hearts are hard or far from you, that you would do a drawing near work, bringing life, that Christ would become to them their Savior. They would respond in faith, turning to him, knowing that his life, death, and resurrection secures for them a full, final, and forever salvation. Would you do that, we pray. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand as we celebrate the return of our king? In Revelation it says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.